Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast Season 2. Woo! Hey. Yay! Alright, so first off, before we delve into the new material for this season, we just wanted to say thank you to our all of our previous listeners from Season 1. Um, it was a pretty good success in terms of our first season. Uh, we had 120 plays on all our episodes with viewers coming in from more than five different countries, which we think is pretty cool for a small podcast like us. Um, So we just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners out there, and we're excited for season two. And I guess now I'll have my co-host. Oh, I forgot to mention, my name's Rhea. Uh, (laughs) My co-host, Elsa, is right over here with me. And um, now I'm going to have her explain what we're doing for season two. Hi, guys. My name's Elsa, and... We want to give a shout out to Anchor as well for making our first season possible. This platform made recording and editing the podcast super easy because, first of all, it was free to download and make an account. And then they did all the work in terms of distributing our podcast to other platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more. And you guys really enjoyed our cute little jingles and songs that we put in the middle of our podcast. And we thought they were a really nice touch to kind of break up our different points. And we have Anchor to thank for all that. Podcasts can be casual or they can be monetized with Anchor. Even if you're just starting out, you can earn money from your podcast because there's no minimum listenership. And Anchor provides the mic, the editing, and creative tools, and the distribution methods. Everything is in one place and super easy to use. All they need is you. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This season, we're going to read the book Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, written by Dr. Michael T. Osterholm and the author and researcher Mark Oshaker. Dr. Osterholm is an epidemiologist who dives into the world of diagnostic medicine and worked in the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. He provides a fascinating perspective on previous diseases that ravaged the world, such as AIDS, and provides insight into the future of other diseases. And so throughout this book, we're looking forward to learning about more diseases and searching for clues into disease prevention. And we chose this book uh, because we thought it would be super timely, considering that we've kind of been going through this crazy time now for almost a year Um you know, COVID-19 has changed all of our lives, no doubt about it. And us being science or future science professionals, um, we kind of wanted to delve deeper into, I guess, you know, past instances, um, because it really wasn't, I mean, it seems like this pandemic kind of came out of nowhere, but um, from listening to different professionals, such as Dr. Anthony Fauci being kind of the most famous one now. But I mean, they all knew about the possibility of this happening. Um, you know, they saw it in previous instances with AIDS, which uh, actually ends up being our first chapter in this book. But um, yeah, they they knew it was kind of coming, but yet the world seemed super unprepared. And um you know, we kind of want to just delve deeper into why that was, uh, what we knew beforehand, and I guess how we can prepare for the next time this happens. So Dr. Osterholm starts off this book talking about consequential epidemiology, which is just the by attempting to change what could happen if we don't act, we can positively alter the course of history. So basically, like, instead of inaction, take action, even when there isn't anything going on in the world in 
preparation for future events. Right. And, you know, we see that with COVID-19 because, you know, all of society has basically stopped functioning. Or, I mean, now it's slowly gaining back to its or it has gained back um, its normal level of functioning. But, you know, things aren't 100 percent back to quote unquote normal. Um, And again, this isn't something that I guess epidemiologists found to be revolutionary. They kind of saw the potential for this all along. Um, One quote that Dr. Osterholm has says heart disease, cancer, even Alzheimer's can have devastating individual effects and research leading to cures is laudable. But these diseases don't have or don't really have the potential to alter the day to day functioning of society, halt travel, trade and industry or foster political instability, which I thought was a really good point because, um, you know, there are a million things. And he talks about this later on. A million things can kill you. Um, but the reason why he's really fascinated with, uh, I guess, viral diseases or anything um, that could be considered a pandemic or epidemic um, is because he sees how it's not just science, but it's very much societal. I agree with you. I think we can see that currently with our um, the U.S.'s response to COVID-19. Um, our societal response has been pretty poor, in my opinion, and because of that, we just have increasing cases. And had we taken action before, um, I feel like all this could have been a lot better. An interesting point that Dr. Osterholm brought up was uh, invoking two metaphors throughout this book. Um, the first being that disease is, and I guess epidemiology is um, like crime. And then it's also very much like war. So in terms of crime, um, it's similar because epidemiologists act like detectives trying to figure out what happened, uh, what may possibly happen as a result of what's happening right now. And, uh, and, and he explains how we should behave like military strategists and what he means that is that um, the disease will never be eliminated because just like crime, just like war, it's ongoing. And so we need to be actively engaging against the disease. And uh, we need to be shifting and modifying the way we fight the disease in order to combat it effectively. And this is kind of similar, though, at least the war point is similar to something else he brings up later on when he talks about how the country came together uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and how, um, I guess, you know, he talks about how, like, that was pretty unique to the event. And the only other time he had seen something like that where the country came together was during 9-11. But he wonders why that can't happen for things like these different uh, outbreaks of disease. And that's something that I actually remember talking to you about and how um, I couldn't understand how, you know, for example, with Pearl Harbor, when we went to war, how the country was such a uh, such a tight unit where it was like everyone was involved in this war movement, this effort to win. And, you know, the troops were happy to go over, happy to fight for their country. Um, everyone at home, the mothers left, uh, the wives left. Uh, the wives left like at home um, 
all of them took over the men's positions in the factories. They contributed to the global war effort. Everyone was doing their part, really, even with rationing food. Um, and so everyone was really involved. And I didn't understand, you know, if we could do that for something, you know, like a war, why couldn't we have done that for COVID-19, which we should have treated like a war because just like war, people are dying and it needs to end. I think to answer that, there are a lot of different reasons for why we couldn't act effectively. Uh, I think one of the main reasons is it's during election year. So there's a lot of divided um, beliefs as is. And so when one candidate um, endorses or is in support of the virus in any way, or not even in support, I mean, just like believes that there is a virus it's like very easy to get on board with that um, as opposed to someone who says it's not real. And in addition to that, people have their own beliefs um, that they can express very freely on social media, which has uh, grown exponentially in the past decade, two decades. And so I feel like misinformation is being spread at a very high rate. And so these are all like reasons that we probably didn't respond to the virus as we should have yeah and even though that was um kind of surprising to me how how much politics could get involved with science i think was a shock to me but even that was something that dr osterholm and i'm assuming other colleagues of his um kind of saw coming when he talks about how you know it's very much every aspect of society gets involved so I mean, what we basically just talked about was his introduction to the book. And, um, you know, all of that and more will continue on uh, because I think his goal is to explain his way of thinking about these different viral diseases, viral diseases and outbreaks. Um, and I guess talking about how how society can get involved in different ways to either hinder our response or aid it so that we are prepared for you know the future and i like the quote that dr osterholm ended on which is the way we are going to confront and deal with the ever-present threat of infectious disease is to understand those challenges so that the unthinkable does not become the inevitable and i think this goes right along with uh, consequential epidemiology because what he's saying is that in order to battle the upcoming uh, diseases, we need to be able to understand what happened in the past and act. We need to act so that it does not become an actual issue that we can't avoid in the future, such as COVID-19. So with chapter one, uh, this was titled Black Swans and Red Alerts. And um, essentially, this chapter revolved around the topic of HIV AIDS and, um, you know, how it came to be, because he was actually involved in the team that had first heard about, you know, this small number of cases that emerged with, um, I guess, symptoms or with patients presenting in a way that hadn't been recorded before. And so he was part of the team to you know, note what the virus was um, and, you know, on I guess, like, how dangerous this was and how dangerous it could be. In terms of the science, the what was that 
this nematocytis carini pneumonia, also called PCP, uh, was a rare parasitic infection that caused a life-threatening pneumonia and was usually seen in only people with compromised immune systems. Um, but this was believed to be causing, um, you know, what is now known as HIV. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't affecting people with compromised immune systems. And then the other, uh, I guess, disease or infection was uh, Kaposi's sarcoma, which is called KS, uh, or which is known as KS. Uh, and it's a disfiguring malignant tumor now known to be caused by human herpes virus 8, HHV8 for short, and also more frequent in people with immune system problems. So again, um, this was usually seen in people with compromised immune systems, but now they had been seeing it in uh, two clusters of young, otherwise healthy gay men on opposite sides of the country, New York City and L.A., And so they were kind of wondering just, you know, what's happening? This seems pretty odd. So Dr. Osterholm was working in Minneapolis um, because a lot of people have had been infected with hepatitis B. There were about 80 cases or more than 80 cases, actually, in a 14 month span. And someone had already died of the infection as well. It was seen that gay men were at high risk for transmitting the virus. And this was because of anal sex. And the reason for this is because uh, through anal intercourse, that area is highly vascularized. So um, all the blood vessels there are susceptible to, I guess, opening. And that way, when there's a transfer of body fluids, um, it's easy to go from one patient into the next patient's bloodstream. And, you know, it's just easier that way compared to um, vaginal intercourse. And so that's why it was at first more frequently seen in gay men. So Dr. Osterholm started investigating the outbreaks, and these outbreaks became known as hepatitis A. So in um, October 1980 to May 1981, there are five young men who are all in the ages of 29 to 36 who um, were homosexuals who were diagnosed with what is now known as HIV. Um, Out of those five people, two of them died. One of those people that died had an underlying disease, but the other one didn't. So there were questions about why certain people were dying and why this was so prevalent in homosexual men. So out of the five people that died, one person had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so the researchers and scientists wondered whether the radiation treatment that this one cancer patient received earlier, three years earlier, had anything to do with the body's response to fight off the disease because he was one of the two people that died. And just to clarify, um, while we do know it today as being HIV back then, they did not know what was happening. Um, So they were kind of looking at these different angles like the radiation treatment or any previous injuries, I guess, that could have been responsible for causing such a um, horrible effect. And this doubt is seen again um, when more numbers of infected people arose in New York and L.A. And so uh, many people wondered if this was because of um, especially because it uh, showed up in the gay community. 
many doctor scientists were wondering if this was because of substances taken to maintain erections. And one of these substances is known as amyl nitrites, which are also called poppers. Um, they were looking for correlations between these two to, um, to see if it was actually gay men who were the main target of this deadly disease. Some other suspects they looked into as part of the differential diagnosis was um, Epstein-Barr virus. So they thought that um, maybe this was causing uh, the symptoms or maybe it was like kind of like a another lineage of the virus. And this is because that EBV or Epstein-Barr virus was also associated with um, Hodgkin's disease or Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then uh, they talk about how EBV was triggering or possibly triggering chronic fatigue syndrome, even though the association has never been proven to the state. Um, And I guess they looked into that and considered it something pretty serious or significant because it might have been also appearing in these HIV cases or, you know, again, just to clarify, they didn't know it was HIV at this point. But um, the reason why I highlighted this uh, is because I actually read as part of some research that um, post-COVID-19 symptoms are very similar to this chronic fatigue syndrome that's seen in EBV or possibly seen in EBV. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically the same thing, and at least in terms of COVID-19. And so it's called post-COVID syndrome. Uh, according to two studies, 50 to 80% of those who have been infected with COVID-19 still seem to be suffering from symptoms of fatigue, myalgia, which is muscle aches, um, dyspnea, which is um, not being able to breathe properly because you're not ox- or your blood isn't oxygenated, oxygenated properly, insomnia, headache, and trouble focusing, among other things, um, after months from their initial viral infection. And, you know... Possible reasons for this is because of permanent damage to organs, and while this doesn't make while this does make sense, it doesn't explain how patients who had a mild case of COVID nineteen are also experiencing this post COVID syndrome. Um, and Dr. Anthony Fauci actually talked about this, and he said that you know it might be as a result of chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and this is believed to be caused by a constant low inflammation in the brain low oxygen levels to the brain and or the body, uh, making antibodies to attack the brain. And this condition was actually also seen in patients who had recovered from SARS. Uh, so it would make sense, at least in the case of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, that this is also happening. But again, just like EBV, it's definitely way too early for COVID-19 to say um, that this syndrome is definitely what's happening that's really interesting that you say that so recently i was talking to multiple people who had the disease and who had covid19 and one of the common things they said was how tired they were and so it's really interesting that you bring that up because it's definitely uh something that seems to be common and i wonder if in the future when we get a better handle of this virus if it's going to be one of the classifications or one of the one of the long-term effects long-term that we effects. note down. So another dynamic of the situation was deciding 
if uh you know gay men being affected was um something significant or maybe just a coincidence and um this i just kind of highlighted because of the phrase that dr osterholm used and it goes like when you hear hoofed beats think of horses before you think of zebras so is this a zebra or simply two unrelated horses um and this one actually intrigued me just because i only heard this phrase for the first time two weeks ago and since then i've seen it like three times but apparently it's like a something that you learn in med school where um they tell you to not think of horses i think that's how it goes like they tell you not to think of horses they tell you to think of zebras because of the fact that you could be missing something um like something obscure that you wouldn't have thought of so like basically it means to think outside of the box um and so i guess that that's just something i thought was interesting and in relation to this it just means that you know obviously it seems like gay men are being affected but was there anything more to it to add on to that uh dr osterholm later says how on through surveys they conducted they were able to find that mostly gay men were affected but they weren't sure if it was because of a small microbe that was infectious such as what is now known as hiv or because of a chemical like the amyl nitrites we talked about before so as the cases were rising, uh, doctors, including Dr. Osterholm, were wondering if this was a black swan event. Um, so the black swan is often used to describe the financial market, but in this case, it's used to describe uh, the occurrence of diseases. And that's because um, it can be an unusually high um, or extremely impactful disease, and it's difficult to predict the events in a larger setting. Um, and that's because specifically in 1980, the cases were very few. There are only, by the end of 1981, there are only 270 cases. And out of those 270 cases of severe immunodeficiency, uh, majority of people, about 212 people died. Um, but this number kept increasing into the thousands. And um, the CDC was getting more requests for pentamidine for PCP. And so the CDC um, realized that it was time to make a case definition so that it was easy to identify, analyze, and target the cause of uh, whatever disease was going around that was taking the lives of so many people. And so by the year 1982, there's thousands of these um, cases, and a lot of them were anomalies because at first we suspected that it was primarily gay men that were susceptible to what is now known as AIDS, but there were children with hemophilia, which is, um, as we discussed in season one, the medical condition where we have the inability for the blood to clot, and so there's uh, profuse bleeding. From this, the doctors or doctors and researchers were able to figure out that the agent that was causing this infectious disease was in the blood. And then so by September 1982, um, the AIDS term came around from the CDC, and AIDS stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. AIDS has all the elements of the greatest public health challenges. And later in 1983, it was declared that a retrovirus was causing um, AIDS. And further research was done to figure out that it was retrovirus HTLV3. And so this semester, uh, me and Rhea actually took genetics and 
we learned that a retrovirus is any group of RNA viruses which are able to insert their DNA copy into the genome and so that the host cell is able to replicate the viral DNA. An example of this is HIV, which we're talking about right now. Retroviruses use reverse transcriptase, which means that they can turn the RNA genome into DNA. And there's also a protein called integrase, which helps integrate the DNA into the host cell so that it can stay in there and further the lysogenic cycle of this viral disease. And this was later confirmed that different places such as France were using different names for the same virus. And so, and it was decided by the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses that there needs to be an official label uh, for the cause of AIDS. And so it was named HIV or Human Immunodeficiency Virus. As for the origin of, you know, where this virus came from, um, very similar, I guess, to COVID-19, uh, came from an animal. Um, and in this case, it began in the jungles of Africa, most likely, as an infection in primates such as monkeys or chimps. And it lingered there for probably, like, many decades before it crossed over into the human population. Um, and the way that happened was that, you know, it was very popular to hunt these primates and eat this meat. And so throughout that whole process of killing, uh, butchering, eating, there was a lot of blood contact. So from there, that's probably how it transferred from primate to human. And then once it got into the human through, you know, any any form of like uh, body fluid contact. So it, it wasn't like sexually transmitted at first, but that that is the um, that is a method of transfer. So then once it got into humans that human-to-human sexual transmission was probably the main means of spread. Um, And then so eventually, as time progressed, it made its way out of this small jungle in Africa and, you know, eventually took over the world. And so in the beginning, there were talks and high hopes that a vaccine would come out and stop this epidemic that was basically, you know, scaring Americans and people all around the world. and the reason for this is because there was and the reason for this is because there was this person Margaret Heckler who said that an AIDS vaccine would be ready within 2 years to Dr. Osterholm uh this seemed ridiculous there was no way that any vaccine really could be developed in 2 years the fact that it was a retrovirus made it even more impossible because uh this retrovirus mutated very quickly so essentially it's like by the time that they make this vaccine it's already looking completely different from the viral particle viral particle that was used to make the vaccine just as a side note this is interesting because you know two years being unrealistic and here we are december 17 2020 uh three days into like the first round of COVID-19 vaccines being released, which was developed in the span of nine months. So that's just interesting to see how far science has come. But then also it made me think, wow, we're definitely lucky that this vaccine was possible because we could have um, easily ended up in the situation where this virus, instead of being uh, something that a vaccine could be formulated against, could have been something like HIV, where it mutated fast and there was no possibility, and all of a sudden, this just becomes our reality. Um, so 
to that point, I just wanted to say we got very lucky and we shouldn't take it as something that like, oh, yeah, next time this happens, we can just make another vaccine. So we really don't know. The next pandemic may not, you know, may not be feasible or it may not be feasible for us to make a vaccine. Right. I think it's important for everyone to understand that a vaccine, even if the time it's taking um, is getting shorter, it does not mean that it's less effective or not tested as much because currently there's a lot of um, fear around the vaccine. I think it's great that, like Rhea said, uh, we're able to produce a vaccine so quickly, but we should be um, grateful for that and not misuse it and also not spread false information about it like it is being spread right now in the media. And yeah, I think we're fortunate in a sense to have this vaccine to fight against COVID-19 with anything. You know, there's reason to be afraid, I guess. Um, But if scientists who really know their stuff they've gone to school for years to really know this stuff uh, and they're telling us that it's safe doctors are telling us that it's safe then i think that uh, we should trust those who know the most um and yeah again be considered lucky that this time around we do have a vaccine or any really form of treatment to fight against and prevent uh covid19 but in the case of hiv you know this is still going on today obviously because the vaccine doesn't exist. And luckily, again, as science has progressed throughout the years, um, now the method of treatment is this cocktail of drugs uh, used to fight against the virus. And again, you know, it's not any prevention or cure, it's control because there is no prevention or cure because there is no vaccine. There are 20 HIV drugs on the market, but this three drug cocktail Uh, is the best currently used to fight against HIV. From an article from CBS News written in 2009, it says that the combination works better and longer. It's easier to take and it suppresses the virus more quickly. It found that four drugs are not necessarily better than three. So with these 20 HIV drugs on the market and hundreds of possible combinations, um, this three drug cocktail seems to work the best. So that's the latest method of treatment. There are multiple forms of transmission, and one was unfortunately found out by uh, Dr. Osterholm's aunt, who fell and broke her hip, and when she was given a blood transfusion. At this time, the American blood supply wasn't checked for HIV, like it is currently, and so the aunt, whose name is Romana Marie Ryan, received blood that had been infected with HIV and so she succumbed to the disease and later died from it. It doesn't just infect a certain community of people, it can affect anybody who comes in uh, bodily contact with the fluids that are infected with HIV. As um, many more cases rose, there was a push for uh, HIV to be scanned for and to be made a reportable public health condition. And there's a lot of backlash against this because people were worried that their health status wouldn't be confidential and it'd be shared with their employers or something would um, happen against the gay community because it was permanently, um, because it was predominant in the gay community. But then in 2015, uh, major healthcare providers came out for universal screening between the ages of 18 and 24 for HIV, and this is one of the many advancements we've made to prevent and manage 
the spread of this viral disease. These screening methods were proven to be beneficial as cases decreased in many regions across the world, specifically in Africa. In 2014, there are almost uh, 37 million people who are living with HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, there are about 2 million new cases per year with 1.2 million deaths. Today, when this uh, book is written, there are about 30 thousand new HIV infections and 20,000 who will die from AIDS. And so these numbers are decreasing, although the number of new infections are still higher than the number of deaths, which means that the overall virus is still going to rise. However, there are many treatments for HIV, such as antiretroviral therapy. Um, But the bad news is that not a lot of people have access to it. In fact, only uh, 40% of people have access to this uh, therapy. About 60 people of the infected population can't access antiretroviral therapy. And so cases are still rising. And scientists are calling this a hyperendemic. This is different from an epidemic because a hyperendemic is persistent and there's high levels of the disease. There can be cases where the amount of the disease can rise above what is expected and this sudden rise is known as an epidemic because a hyperendemic is very persistent and it's hard to get rid of and AIDS was defined as such. So I guess the main idea here is just we, we know that this is possible but now we should just use that information so that we can prevent it from happening in the future. But unfortunately, evidence, knowledge, and logic aren't always enough. And I think we definitely know that now. Chapter two is titled Annals of Public Health, and it revolves around epidemiology. As we mentioned before, Dr. Osterholm is an epidemiologist. So you might be wondering, what is epidemiology? Well, it is the study of disease in populations with the aim of preventing disease in people and animals, which is a quote I took directly from the book. And basically, the point of epidemiology is to analyze diseases so that we can prevent them so that hyperendemics, such as hyperendemics in sub-Saharan Africa, can be prevented or controlled. So vaccines, like mentioned in the previous chapter, can't completely eradicate a disease, but it can control and prevent transmission of the disease into larger groups, which is the ring strategy of vaccination. Um, And it's officially known as surveillance and containment, and we might call it herd immunity. And so many people are investing time, money, and research into um, ways to prevent and control diseases so that they don't get out of hand and have a huge impact on the human population. And like Rhea mentioned before, people often come together in the times of crises. And so Dr. Osterholm mentions how an alien invasion might be something that the world finally comes together to fight against. But um, a microbial infectious disease can also be the surrogate for an alien invasion. And that's because we need to come together, have herd immunity in order to eradicate or even control something that deadly. Um, I talked about how, like, death is, like, you know, inevitable. 
and all deaths are sad, but it's like when we can prevent tragic deaths, that's what we should do. And as epidemiologists, that's their goal. Um, but then when you can't prevent, the next goal would be to minimize disease. And in a sense, you know, to some extent, we do come together, uh, even if it's not as much as we would want to. I guess uh, we still do come together, and that's the goal of public health. Um, it's not really to prevent death because death is inevitable, but when we can prevent tragic deaths, such as, you know, young children or, you know, young adults in general who are dying from diseases, that's what epidemiologists try to prevent. And when that's not possible, such as, you know, HIV is at this point unstoppable. So then the next goal is to try and minimize disease so that less people are harmed. And specifically, we employ certain procedures to do so. And, uh, you know, the first of which being sanitation. And a lot of this is familiar to COVID-19 now. But, I mean, like, sanitation, safe water and food, vector control if it's transmitted by, let's say, a mosquito. Um, And then I think the interesting piece here that he mentions is non-medical actions, such as educating the public about what's going on. Um, trying to get the public to change their behaviors in COVID-19. That would be like mask wearing um, and, of course, quarantining. And I just thought this was important just because of how pertinent it is to today. I think it's really interesting um, and important that you mentioned non-medical actions such as educating the public because educating the public can really help alleviate stress from medical professionals in treating and fighting such harmful diseases. An example is currently, we talked about how there's a lot of misinformation about COVID-19 and had the right information been out there, or if we try to further the correct information, more it might reach more people. And this might take a lot of stress from healthcare professionals who are fighting in the front lines. Moving on to a bit of a different topic, Dr. Osterholm talked about how the first vaccine actually came to be. Um, this is something that is we were familiar with because uh, Dr. Mawalam taught us about this last season. So it's the story of the milkmaid um, or a bunch of milkmaids seeming to be immune from smallpox. And we now know the reason for this was because they had cowpox, which is a milder form of the virus. And, uh, you know, knowing this information or seeing this correlation Dr. Edward Jenner uh, did some experiments where he took the pus from cowpox blisters on the hands of milkmaids and he scratched it into the arms of children or specifically this one child and uh, realized that and then or then proceeded to infect this child with smallpox and saw how um, he was immune. This is interesting just because of the ethics that kind of intrigued me, how he just injected this child with whatever no consent whatsoever um yeah i think that's pretty funny too but i think um especially because medicine hadn't evolved so much it makes sense and it's crazy how we have to take such drastic measures to make new breakthroughs in medicine because vaccines are something that we are currently looking forward to like you said before And so Dr. Osterholm finally 
ends this chapter by stating how the average life expectancy of humans has gone up significantly with the advancements in modern medicine. Um, in, in the early 1900s, the average life expectancy was about 48 years old, and by 2000, uh, it's about 77. He states how clean water, sewer systems, safer food, and pasteurized milk, along with vaccines, are all advances that we have made as a civilization in order to prevent uh, disease outbreaks that kills children or hurts them that they're vulnerable to other environmental factors. We need to take risks in order yeah. to make advancements in medicine because although something may seem sketchy or scary to us, those are the only ways that we can make true medical discoveries. Yeah, and I think actually this was a similar point that Dr. Moala made when he talked about um, how, I forgot exactly what he was talking about, but it was the same theme of how um, we shouldn't be afraid to kind of take risks, take risks in medicine and think about making connections that aren't so obvious. And I guess that also goes with the whole zebras and horses thing. So it seems to be a very big topic in health and medicine just think outside of the box because anything is You're really right. possible yeah i think we learned a lot from dr osterholm yeah and you know this was a nice start and i look forward to seeing what other cases dr osterholm brings up me too thanks for tuning into this episode and we hope you stick around for this season bye